Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And what Montana legislators are doing to Zoe Zephyr brings shame upon them. Absolute shame. She is the transgender Montana representative barred from being on the floor of the state house to which she was elected. So she retreated to a bench in the lobby, which, as she explained to supporters, is captured by the AP. The Speaker of the Montana House tried to chase her away from as well. I want to sit yeah. here and do my work. He cannot say that. And they said, get out. They said, you, they said you're not allowed here. Speaker Aguirre came out and he said, you can't be here. This is for the public. And I said, I want to be as close as I can to the people's house. I was barred from there. But if I'm not barred from here, I want to be here because I want to yes. be as close as yes. I can be. Great triumph. She was allowed to remain in the hallway. She did, however, just lose a suit to get her back onto the floor of the state house. Montana lawmakers have passed bills getting between doctors and patients on the issue of transgender care and also banning drag shows. How do you even define a drag show? A man dressed as a woman? Sorry, all productions of Comedy of Errors and Midsummer Night's Dream. Even if you think the science on hormones or puberty blockers for teens isn't quite as perfectly beyond debate, beyond question, as trans activists assert, for lawmakers to get in the way of doctors is a much worse solution. Yes, there have in history been scientific procedures that have eventually been banned. Most outgrowths of eugenics, involuntary procedures such as psychosurgery, i.e. lobotomies, they're against the law in most states, not lobotomies per se, but just involuntary psychosurgery procedures. But I think about this and I ask you, have politicians ever correctly banned a treatment protocol that the medical establishment endorsed? Not one time endorsed, right? There have been times when all of society changed their minds, the evidence came in, they turned their backs on a once preferred treatment course. And in those cases, the laws followed the opinions of medical associations. But have legislators in America ever said, ever properly said, no, you consensus of doctors are simply incorrect. We know better. And the lawmakers have been right. I can't think of any times. Tell me if you can. So Zoe Zephyr's in the hall. My stake in the trans debate is do no harm, first of all, which is not defined as do nothing. It may be properly defined as intervening. But my big stake in the debate is to have a debate, a real debate, a discussion. It doesn't have to be two sides yelling at each other, but let's actually discuss and get the evidence. And I have said over and over when good reporters can't present the facts or can't do so without being pilloried, 
where fair argument can't take place, that too is wrong. But what's right is not a transgender lawmaker getting shunted into the hallway. As much as I'm aggrieved by the excesses of shunning social pressure and vitriol intruding upon good questions and free inquiry, I'm much more opposed to the state telling dissenters, shut up and go away, not just telling them, forcing them to do so. That is truly a shame. On the show today, I wait into another free speech area. This time a reporter's free to speak, but maybe he discredits himself by doing so. But first, if your favorite team has been eliminated from the NBA playoffs or never even made the playoffs to begin with, take heart. There's no crying in baseball. There's no eye in team. And now we're told there is no failure in sports. It was a viral post-game press conference by a losing player. No, sorry, a player in uh, the process of winning, just in a roundabout way. But Giannis Antetokounmpo's sentiment actually had layers and depth, and I want to get into it. My next guest, Ethan Strauss, is an NBA expert and a caller of malarkey. When the call of malarkey is warranted, Ethan Strauss up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Giannis Antetokounmpo, whose name I enjoy saying, though arguably not saying well, is also arguably the greatest basketball player in the world. This argument I'm about to engage in is not that argument. Antetokounmpo's Milwaukee Bucks, they were the favorite to win the NBA championship this, this year. Instead, they lost in the first round. It really wasn't his fault. He was hurt for uh, almost three games and he came back and played well. But the team did lose, right? And they were favorites. So that could be considered, what's the word for that? Oh, yeah a failure, or that would be the word if we lived in a society comfortable with making such blunt assessments. Do you view this season as a failure? <sighs> oh my God. Uh, you asked me the same question last year, Eric. So when the question of failure was put to Antetokounmpo, he answered in a really actually thoughtful and soulful way. It went viral. Uh, do, you get, do you get the promotion every year on your job? No, right? So every year you work is a failure. Yes or no? No. Every, every year you work, you work towards something, towards a goal, right? Which is to get a promotion, to be able to uh, take care of your family, to be able, I don't know, um, provide the house for them or take care of your parents. You work towards a goal. It's not a failure. It's steps to success. You know, and if you've never, I don't, know, I don't, want, to, I don't want to make it personal. So there's always steps to it. You know, um, Michael Jordan played 15 years. Won six championship. The other nine years was a failure. That's what you're telling me. No, I'm asking you a question. Yes or no? Okay, exactly. So why are you asking me that question? It's a wrong question. There's no failure in sports. You know, there's good days, bad days. Some days, some days you are able to uh, be successful. Some days you're not. Some days it's your turn. Some days it's not your turn. And that's what sports is about. You don't always win. Some other other people's gonna win. And this year somebody else is gonna win. 
I really like Giannis hereafter. We will call him Giannis. But the celebration of the sentiment which spread throughout the internet uh, was that there is no failure in sport. My guest, the sports writer and culture writer, Ethan Strauss, writes the House of Strauss Substack, has a podcast of the same name. He dared to note of the subject of failure of sp- in sport. Actually, there there is. <laughs> Seems kind of obvious. Yeah. But sports marketing maybe is conspiring to obscure that. Ethan, welcome to The Gist. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. If only there was no failure possible in this conversation like there is in sports well right if there were no failure in sports you know how the uh, playoff starts with 16 teams it would have 16 teams throughout right sounds ideal sounds like a utopia Mm. so when you first saw the clip was it had already had it already been celebrated as truth telling or did you just see it in the context of all right this is a guy in a post-game press conference answering a somewhat annoying question in you know pretty good way it's I first experienced it like a, like a person in my occupation um, where I went, oh, that's Eric name asking him the questions. OK, well, that's an interesting interaction. I was processing that's the sports it. writer from The Athletic. Eric yes. Name. And and I was um, very drawn into I mean, Giannis is almost effortlessly charismatic and has a certain sweetness to his persona sometimes because he's boiling over with rage at Eric, who asked a fair question, in my opinion. But then he says that he doesn't want to make it personal and apologizes to him. And so the whole thing was such a a high wire act in a way. And I absorbed it before it was processed and before it was turned into a Nike advertisement saying that there is no failure in sports. Yes. So it's obviously not factual to say there's no failure in sports, but what do you think he was trying to say? And how do you think that message was maybe twisted in how it was received? Yeah. What he's trying to say is a fairly inspirational message that you need to make everything happening to you as part of this process where you're growing and getting better. And he was making the point that Michael Jordan the greatest winner of all winners did not win a championship in most of his seasons Were the other seasons failures. He asked uh, somewhat rhetorically. And I don't think we see it that way. And his point is because those other seasons were part of his getting better overall and driving to these other accomplishments that he had. And that's, that's how we saw it. And there are other perspectives attached to that one. I mean, the, it's a disappointment, because the Bucks had the first seed. Well, was it a failure for them to achieve the first seed before flaming out of the playoffs? Um, I don't think so. I think that's good as well. So English is not his first language. I think he was he was conveying a lot there um, that was interesting and was nuanced, and he had a point. But what's so odd about this, Mike, is that the takeaway line, the tagline, then becomes something that's utterly untrue. There is no failure in sports. I would say yes. I would say that is untrue. There is failure in sports. The Milwaukee Bucks, they certainly failed in their postseason. I think that is as close to objective truth we can get uh, on something that's a bit subjective. So you use the word process, and that, I think, is the nub of the excellent point. Plus, there was Giannis showing himself to be kind to the reporter and reflective and perhaps inspirational in a Ted Lasso way. We could get to that. But I think the best point to make 
the best time to make the point about process. And I was in a press conference, NCAA tournament, Brad Stevens, who was then the coach of Butler, made this point after a win. And after a win, you could say, you know, we got the result on the scoreboard, but what I look at is more process. Here's what we did well. Here's what we didn't do well. And if you there's a famous sports phrase, trust the process, mm. or people who are business experts talk about being process oriented. That's when you can, if what you really want to do is emphasize how process, not product is the important part. It sounds a lot less defensive when you do it after a win. Oh yeah. No, it's, I mean, if the Warriors after losing, being up 3-1 in the finals in 2016, if Steve Kerr at the end of game seven, where they had lost and they were getting mocked everywhere, if he said, well, by process, I think we won. Um, that wouldn't go over all that great. Um, but I think the process of the Bucks has been called into question. I think coaching decisions by Mike Budenholzer, uh, those got called into question. Giannis, I do think, is the best player in the league, but he struggles with his free throws, and he was struggling mightily, and he was hot-potatoing the ball, um, which didn't really help his team. And so there were certainly... There were certainly some, let's say, deficiencies or some errors that factored into why they lost uh, beyond you get unlucky sometimes and there's variance and there's luck at play. And I think that's all fair to look at. And if you're the Milwaukee mm -hmm. Bucks, given where they're at, given some of the salary issues they have, it's an incredibly disappointing result. And yes, it is regarded as a failure. Right. So from the very specific basketball perspective, which something like 1% of the people engaged in that video care about, Milwaukee Bucks fans, or maybe people very invested in Giannis's development, it is not just a lie that there is no failure in sports. It is also a lie that this was part of their journey of growth. This was <laughs> a setback. They played worse. A Milwaukee Bucks fan is absolutely correct to say, you know, we know that Giannis wasn't a good foul shooter. Coach, you got to have some better, more interesting plays than just give it to the guy and hope for the best. Let's just uh, put that out there. But it is also true that the people who were celebrating this clip did not care about what, what um, is his name? Eric name? Yes, yes. yes. Eric name. The Eric people name. His name is literally Eric name. Yes, name. Say his name. <laughs> the people who are celebrating this clip we're not the audience for Eric Name's question. Who covers the Milwaukee Bucks for The Athletic? They want answers. They deserve answers. We root for sports because we're fans of athletes and we want them to succeed or we want them to play their best. He was asking a legitimate question and Giannis gave this beautiful answer that was essentially a lie, which was that, <laughs> oh no, it's part of our growth. Yeah. And people like pretty lies, don't they? Especially yeah, on Instagram yeah. where I saw this really pop. When you're noting something very interesting, it's just that this became a product to consume for people who didn't care about basketball. My friend said his wife, who doesn't care at all, saw it on Instagram and really enjoyed it and enjoyed the message of it. So there is something to the message that when taken outside of its specific context, is applicable to people's lives in a nice way that your setbacks might not be a failure overall and you've need you, you need to again trust the process and have a good process i think michael jordan had advertisements that hit on themes like that getting cut from his varsity team um and i've missed so many shots and that's allowed me to make my shots these are all these are all good messages but in a way that 
kind of reflect a culture that wants to be able to curate its way out of any sort of downside. And they also, again, as you're noting, when taken into the narrow context of the Milwaukee Bucks, it's just not true. This is a really bad outcome for them. It does not make future success more likely. This is not Magic Johnson having the tragic Johnson moment in the finals and then that being the fuel for his getting better. It can be on a personal level for Giannis, but it's really a very poor outcome for the Milwaukee Bucks. Right. And that cultural piece, that's why I'm most interested in having this conversation. What was the phrase you just used? Where curating failure out of the human experience? Yeah. I think there's a will to do that. I think everybody's looking for the drug with no downside. Um, there is sometimes this sense that we can get it. And we see it in all these different um, aspects of life, but it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that. There's always a downside. You can't have the light without the darkness. You can't have the glory right. without the failure. And we're not going to be able to build a sports culture that's like an episode of Ted Lasso, not first season, which was pretty good, but the other seasons where it's just everybody's hunky dory. That's just not going to that's not going to be. Yeah, and that point you can't have the drug without the downside. The NBA is not Ozembic. That point was what Giannis was trying to make, only it mm. didn't fit the facts. Yeah. Right? And so I think you're right that the more you know, it's one of those infuriating things that the more you know about the facts of the situation, the less true the platitude or bromide seems. Yes. Yeah. That's, again, you're really good at identifying these. and it, <laughs> it's It's why you've got such a good podcast, but- Yes, it's language that really hits differently based on your specific context. And this is just one of those times. I do think it reflects something else in the marketing, how Nike has tried to move away from marketing the just do it and glory to something that's a little bit broader, a little bit friendlier. And it really is this movement away from just do it to at least you tried. They've had marketing that's been similar. And I made the point in my article that they really spent more thought and time marketing Giannis talking about his failure than they did when he won the championship in 2021, scoring 50 points. So that's a bigger topic. Is Nike, I mean, Nike are geniuses. They don't make marketing mistakes. Are they wrong to emphasize this message and get away from the Michael Jordan killer mentality message? I mean, I think that they do make mistakes in part because they're so on top. I think that's that's the, when the complacency really sets in. It's when you can't lose. But they're also trying for something different here. I think Nike is this odd case where they are an apparel giant, maybe the the greatest apparel Goliath, but they've got this quirk where the majority of their customers are men, where two-thirds of their sales go to men who buy less apparel than women do on average. So Nike's looking at the situation as, okay, what's our future engine of growth? Well, it's going to be women. How do we get women to buy Nike products? They don't totally know, but I think mm. this is maybe another example of them trying. They're trying a variety of ways in order to get that market. And obviously, women comprise about a little over half the world. So it's not so easy to have a targeted message that appeals to all. But that's what they're trying. And this might represent a bit of a shift in tone from killer be killed into something that might be a little bit friendlier. 
Yeah, well, after the Bulls documentary came out and Michael Jordan was there being full Michael Jordan and essentially making the case that if I didn't have this killer mentality, I wouldn't have won all those championships. There was a little bit of a societal backlash. You know, we know that's not true. Do we? I, w- I would say that if you're a, you know, easygoing guy who doesn't punch teammates in practice, it's probably mm. okay. You could win a championship. You might be able to win two. I don't know that you could win four unless you're crazy mindset. I'll la Michael Jordan. But there was a little bit of this cultural backlash. And I also sensed, and you wrote about a bunch of Nike campaigns getting away from the killer mindset. And yet, when you look at what are the most popular sneakers, what is the most popular brand to this day at Nike, it's still the Jordan stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even see much backlash. I think people like a little bit of the dirt. I think people enjoy as they said in American Hustle, far too many times in that movie, by the way, um, that every sweet perfume has a little bit of a note of something rancid and nasty to it. I think people enjoy that, and that's part of what drew them to Michael Jordan. It was he, he did do the nice guy image in his marketing, but there was a little bit of a sense of the book, The Jordan Rules, about how vicious he is, because sports is vicious. It really is. And we kind of know that and we kind of don't know that. And I think it was appealing for people to be able to see it in that documentary. And yeah, you don't need to punch your teammates, but Michael Jordan did it. And so did Draymond Green, who's won championships. And so that's part of sports. And I think it's something I enjoy writing about. It's do we want to pretend that this thing is something different than what it is? Or do we want to accept it on its own merits on its own terms which is not a very nice world it's sharp elbowed i don't think it's altogether different from a lot of other hyper competitive worlds but these guys are out there competing in a form of simulated combat for hundreds of millions of dollars you fail you get sent home you don't have a job anymore you succeed and you're rich beyond your wildest dreams it informs a certain culture and a certain outlook that isn't necessarily what always gets marketed Yeah. So I think it was in one of your recent podcasts where you made the point that in the fictional world, Ted Lasso is a great coach. In the real world, Bill Belichick's a great coach. And if listeners don't know, this guy is merciless and, you know, maybe left once 13 years ago. But do you think the marketing once acknowledged that Bill Belichick was the great coach and will figure out how to work with that reality? And now the marketing has... And, and by extension, the culture as a whole is rejecting that reality? Well, I think the marketing would accept the premise that the great ones are the ones who would do anything to win. And that was part of the mm-hmm. Michael Jordan mythology. It wasn't, he's a bad guy and we love him. It's that this guy will cheat at cards with his teammate's grandmother or mother. I can't remember how the anecdote went. He'll do yeah. anything. And that's what's being upheld. Um, I think there was more of an acknowledgement that, people would have to do anything to win. And now in a way, we just want it all. And we want a reality where the people who will do anything to win, maybe they wouldn't do anything. Maybe that's not what's important. Maybe it's about, I don't know, just trying hard. I think there's a discomfort with it. There's a discomfort and it's understandable in a way, but there's a discomfort with the notion that people will do bad things in pursuit of this goal that we celebrate. Naomi Osaka, one of Nike's main um, clients, she gets $10 million for Nike. She has now more fame for not playing tennis because of uh, mental health issues than for playing tennis. Do you think that 
this was <laughs> this was perceived in uh, Nike headquarters as a huge setback or more in keeping with what you're saying and an opportunity for them. I think it's like uh, on a movie set when maybe an actor knocks something over and the director yells, use it, use it. It's just <laughs> they couldn't control it. Osaka. They would prefer a reality where Osaka continued to compete and win and rack up grand slams. But when she wouldn't do that, they were so pot committed that they needed to find a way to market quitting, um, which I don't think is the best message. I don't think a lot of what she said is something that people need to hear. And hey, if you want to quit and you want to retire, I, I don't know what you're going through. Maybe your sport doesn't make you happy. That seems like a personal choice. That That's something that I would not criticize, but it gets a little weird when the apparel giant is marketing it as the great thing, you know, the great thing is no longer trying. The great thing is quitting because of your right. mental health, which I don't think quitting and mental health are the most correlated things. So um, I don't think that they worked it out that way or wanted it to go that way. I think that they are cynically trying to sell that act. And I don't think it's the greatest. I don't think it's the greatest message. Not that we're often assessing advertisements for their moral weight. Yeah. And let me, uh, I'll read a headline that I just read in Tennis World. Naomi Osaka credits Giannis Antetokounmpo for giving her life-changing perspective. Exactly ah. what we're talking about. <laughs> and let, let's also say mental health is real. Personally, I think you're on board with this. Simone Biles, when she withdrew, she had the twisties. She could kill herself up there if she uh, gets disoriented. Yeah. Uh, I'm not here to judge Osaka, but you use a blunt phrase like quitting or failure. We're just so uncomfortable with the straightforwardness of that. And to a large extent, quitting, let's also credit, she's pregnant, she's going through a lot. I mean, that does describe yeah. what's going on. And Nike was the just do it people. They're not the just quit doing it people yeah i mean exactly and with biles when she bowed out of those competitions in the olympics yeah i would not judge her for doing that i have no idea what goes into gymnastics um at all it just where it gets a little bit uncomfortable is when that act is then presented as bravery itself which you can kind of understand a little bit but now we're totally inverted we're denzel in flight flying the plane upside down um and we're and, saying and that we've the, got the twisties and we've got <laughs> the twisties and we might be a little drunk um in like as happened in that movie where we start saying that the real accomplishment is not going for the accomplishment I wish we could just find a middle ground, Mike, and it could just be, yeah, yeah. she can't do this. She has the twisties. Okay, that makes sense. Doesn't need to be criticized, but maybe doesn't need to have a whole marketing campaign and literally be on the cover of Time magazine, as happened, for bowing out of the Olympics. Lest a listener think, oh, Ethan, he's just doing that thing where you rail against participation trophy culture and let's not praise not winning. There's more nuance, and I've been hearing more nuance than that. But what would you say uh, were someone to raise that or characterize your um, take on this entire situation as the overly familiar railing against participation trophy culture? Yeah. Well, first of all, I reject the premise of that. I think we've got something handed down to us from the boomer generation, the never trust anybody over 30, which ironically is now used as a cudgel against them now that they're old. But the sense that anybody having a misgiving of where the culture is gone is out of touch. And therefore, you don't even have to think about the criticism. They're wrong to note the shift. 
I don't think that's so. I think that's a fallacy. Good things are happening in a culture and not so good things are happening in a culture. Maybe failures are happening. Um, so I reject the premise that it's bad if you align with a cliche. Cliches are cliche for a reason. But at the same time, I, I, I've, the whole participation trophy thing, I've never totally understood. I, I don't think kids want those. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they care when they get the plastic trophy. Um, I don't think it sates them when it happens. And I'm not sure that that's really this big indicator of a softening culture um, in the way that uh, comedians might have pointed out. Um, but yeah, it's a real it's a real thing that we are inherent increasingly uncomfortable with the downsides of life, and it is illustrated by some of these cultural controversies that we see, especially in sports. Ethan Strauss hosts the House of Strauss podcast, writes the House of Strauss Substack. His entry on this incident was called Don't Rob Us of Failure, Steph, Giannis, LeBron, and Greatness Needing That One Big Risk. Thank you so much, Ethan. Anytime, Mike. And now the spiel. The Washington Post wrote a sensible op-ed the other day talking about an issue that I talk about on the show often. It was a more than sensible op-ed. It was well done and necessary, I'd say. Title, These Universities Are Pushing Back on Censorious Students, Finally. It discussed not just high-profile examples of the Cornell president rejecting a student trigger warning resolution titled Mandating Content Warnings for Traumatic Content in the Classroom, and the Stanford Law Dean's pushback on students trying to use the heckler's veto. There's also new information to me in the op-ed, such as the fact that Vanderbilt is hosting the Future of Free Speech Project with a Danish think tank. All good, except to Ben Collins, it was not good. Calling the op-ed brain dead, Collins advised the Washington Post to, quote, grow up and talk to your actual reporters about what's really going on, good God. The original tweet of Collins in its entirety was a screenshot of the Washington Post headline with Collins' comment, they are literally stripping shelves bare of books at public schools in Florida, and we're still getting absolutely brain-dead takes like this one by the editorial pages at newspapers in 2023. Grow up and talk to your actual reporters about what's really going on, good God. All right, fine. I'm very familiar with the knee-jerk dismissiveness of any concern about excesses and free speech issues on college campuses. Typically, they fall into different buckets. One is don't minimize the harms these students face. One is anyone concerned with the excesses of students trying to shut up their opponents are the real shutter-uppers. And then there's to complain about students just marks you as old and clinging to unenlightened values. It's not just that the Washington Post makes good comments and Ben Collins doesn't. It's why is Ben Collins making these comments? Here's a guy who's supposed to be a straight reporter on the disinformation beat, but he's constantly trying to dunk on every interpretation of events that he doesn't like. I'm open to interesting nuance on any of the specific issues. I've engaged in a lot of nuance. I think if you go back and listen to my stance on the Stanford case here on the gist, that was nuanced. But dismissing the Post stance, which generally aligns with what I think and certainly aligns with what the majority of Americans think, dismissing that as brain dead is the mark of a 
certain kind of familiar advocate of social justice. Again, fine, perfectly fine, I'd say, even if I disagree, except in the case of Ben Collins, it's not fine or shouldn't be given Ben Collins' role in the media ecosystem. By covering disinformation for NBC News, Collins is tasked with bringing to millions of viewers and readers on the online audience credible coverage of an important information. And disinformation really is important. Foreign actors have tried to influence our elections. Tools and algorithms make instantaneous dissemination of misinformation common. The Siloization of news and belief systems essentially allow us all to choose our own reality. And on the fringes, lies and propaganda have stoked real-world violence. But disinformation is harder to eradicate than termites. It's actually more like bacteria. What's the good bacteria? What's the bad bacteria? How much can you trust your gut? One temptation is to use the label and the suppressive powers of the state to call all unwanted or disfavored information disinformation. And that is why the arbiters of this specific issue have to be really, really clean really credible. It's important. Disinformation has this internal tension. It's so easy to define it in ways that advance the definer's political agenda. So why would one of the referees, a supposed arbiter of accuracy, so wantonly weighed in with his blazing takes, and I'd say blazingly dense takes, on an issue of free expression? Again, it's not just Any straight news reporter getting into it on Twitter or having an opinion, it's specifically about disinformation because disinformation inherently competes for the mantle of believability. And one way that it wins is by casting disbelief on the very fact that it happens. So let's think about what occurs when the disinformation reporter acts as a popcorn machine of opinion. The disinformation referee gets reduced to just that usual collection of hashtags and online dunks and owns. Ignorant dismissiveness comes at a cost to the dunker and, yeah, to the parent organization that's trying to define itself as credible. And that's why I tweeted a screenshot of Collins calling the Washington Post op-ed brain dead with this sentiment, quote, I literally can't understand how a proper news organization allows a reporter this degree of latitude to come in guns blazing on an issue where reasonable people can disagree. Ben may be right, but doesn't NBC realize how it confuses readers and muddies the waters of their brand? Lots of people weighed in on my timeline with agreement. That was one day. The next day, Ben himself weighed in, quote, This issue has been a never-ending boogeyman that is a clear stand-in for something is wrong with the kids these days for my entire lifetime. It is okay for me to call it out. I don't try to get your podcast canceled from the podcast factory over your inability to grasp this. So I was heartened to know that Ben says it's okay for Ben to call out the Washington Post over an issue or issue, as he put in scare quotes, excellent auto-ombudsmaning there, Ben. And right after that, Ben adds another tweet. I understand you guys are losing power and it makes you very afraid, but don't drag my job into your moral panic freak out. Thank you. That's, by the way, the standard objection to the excesses of college students. I'm old and I don't get the new enlightenment. I responded to Collins this way by putting issue in scare quotes. I'm sure all the audience members who disagree will realize they're wrong and still believe you're reporting on disinformation. That's how informing the public works, right? You know, in truth, I don't care about Ben Collins, person, opinion haver. I care about our ability as a society, as the media, as the reality community to effectively convince people 
who might otherwise say, oh, come on, this thing you're calling disinformation, it doesn't really exist. LOL, nothing matters. You're just mad. You're losing. And that's what they do say. And I think a good answer is something like, actually, no, here's the data. Here's the documentation. Here's the direct line from lies to beliefs to action. But chain of custody gets muddied when the messenger is telling his followers, no, the Cornell president was wrong. The Stanford dean is overreacting. The standards of discourse and the culture of free exchange of ideas, that's not worth protecting. The new free speech project, that's all in the category of moral panic. Oh, also you're old and you need to hear this from me. How will you possibly reach anyone who doesn't already believe you? And not just believe you, but totally buys into your worldview, which dismisses their legitimate perceptions. You just broadcast that their quite reasonable perceptions are but a sign of old age and brain damage. And why would you want to put your worldview on such display for dispute? Because it's unassailable? No, I think it's because you can't help it. So that's why I wrote... I'm sure all the audience members who disagree will realize they're wrong and still believe you're reporting on disinformation. That's how informing the public works, right? And he responded, I'll tell you what not informing the public is, conflating banning books from public libraries and schools with students asking the people who run their colleges to refrain from spending their tuition money on edgelords from the internet. Thanks, Ben. If I wanted a lesson on not informing the public, I'd watch you on TV. I did not tweet, but I could have. I share it with you in this more refined forum. I also didn't take the distracting bait about banning books. Censorious college students, that's not a problem because book bans are a problem. Crazy idea. They're both problems. And the not this but that technique, that is known as whataboutism, which I'm sure the disinformation reporter knows is a classic propaganda method. I try one last time with Ben. You diminish your standing when you aggressively stake out these questionable positions. You need to have credibility in order to reach viewers who agree with the Cornell president or the Stanford dean. You become the guy who defines disinformation as information he doesn't like, which is basically my thesis and no insults. And Ben says, Mike, you sound like Glenn Greenwald in literally every way right now. Please look at the response to your tweet and reflect. I don't think I'm a gay Bolsonaro target who won the Pulitzer for publicizing Snowden. So not literally in every way. But, you know, Glenn Greenwald is free speech. So am I. I do think it's especially important to balance the value of free speech with the idea and label of disinformation. It's kind of the most delicate thing about defining and mitigating against disinformation to be sure you don't get it wrong, to make sure those with the power to suppress disinformation aren't just targeting bad ideas. Someone like Glenn Greenwald takes a more absolutist approach than I do from what I've seen of his arguments. He doesn't think that private companies ever engage in proper content moderation. He doesn't want companies to do any more than assure posts on their site, don't break the law or commit libel. I think there's a role for private companies to take content moderation seriously. I also am very skeptical of the government's ability to accurately label what is disinformation and to suppress it and to not get that wrong. So when one of Ben's followers tells me to shut the fuck up and one asks, why in the world do you care about NBC's brand? 
It's because we have three TV networks, a couple of 24-hour news stations of wavering credibility, and maybe three national newspapers, a couple decent magazines slash websites, and those are the outlets that have the ability to define reality, to set the agenda, to speak with credibility, and I hate to lose them. I hate to lose them to Gateway Pundit, QAnon, Crack and Talk, OAN, the Children's Health Defense, but also to groupthink, to selective outrage in general. I've talked about this explicitly or implicitly on every show I've done for nine years. Of course I care if we lose our truth-seeking mechanisms to lies or just to impulse and lack of self-control. Since I posted my original critique of Ben Collins, people within NBC, people who also cover disinformation, experts on the First Amendment, and people who cover beats very similar to Ben's have back-channeled me and said, exactly. They say, I can't believe a guy who's supposed to be a straight news reporter is always popping off like this. Well, I believe it. I just decry it. And I wonder how much he cares about what should be his real mission, because if he did, he would sacrifice a little of the dopamine hit of the Twitter row and show the entire audience that he's there to tell them something accurate and important. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief content officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>